This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. The predominant lesson that they taught us was to ask questions first. And the reason for that was you wanted to build receptivity with the person that you were talking to. And if you didn't start out by stating your opinion, you won't get the breadth or the richness out of the other person. When you ask a question to somebody that could be as simple as, what do you think? You affirm them as a, uh, as a respected individual. That's the first thing a question does. And the second thing asking a question does is allows you to hear a different point of view than what you have. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we feature part two of our interview with Bruce Hartman, CFO Emeritus of Foot Locker, Cushman & Wakefield, and Yankee Candle. But what may be most surprising about Bruce is his latest chapter, After a notable and successful CFO career, Bruce goes back to school to study theology and write a book that offers practical lessons and insights for business leaders. Our discussion with Bruce continues after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. To circle back with you on your list of five management items uh, when it comes to people, and, and just go down the list with you and share some quick impressions uh, on each item, allowing you to expand if you like. Um, but um, let's let's begin with number one: identify those people who get things done. I find this one uh, particularly interesting because finance people. Are, are, are vulnerable here. Uh, too often they get married to the process or focused on the rules and they're not thinking out of the box or how to get this done. Um, and, am I right? Would you agree? I, I think that's really accurate what you said and I think that's the challenge for any CFO is to get 
folks to get out from behind the rules, uh, which isn't to say that you ignore or avoid or don't have respect for the rules. You certainly do. But it's similar to being, if, if you're familiar with hockey, it's, it's similar to being an offensive defenseman in hockey. Um, if you can do if you can do your job as a defenseman and then also help the offense out, you make your team better. And I think the principle is any employee that expands himself or herself beyond what they were trained to do becomes more valuable to the company. And I think that should be every employee's um, mentality is to make yourself more valuable. Sure, you have to do your job. Uh, but your job is always to make the company more profitable. And one of the things that we would do, particularly when we were identifying strong finance people, did they have the ability to co- go beyond the rules, not to break the rules, but to go beyond the rules and add extra value to the company. So those are the folks that have that mentality that get things done, and that's what we would look for. And certainly you need um, – you know, really good number crunchers and people that know the rules. But the predominant attitude in, I think, in any successful company is you have to have employees that want to make themselves more valuable and want to help the company and don't hide behind uh, procedures and rules. Okay, number two, and I have to say, listening is one of the qualities that so many of the finance leaders we speak to when we ask them, what is that personal attribute that you have that, that allowed you to succeed? And they say they were good listeners. So it's not, no surprise that listen to learn is, was your number two. How did you become a good listener? Were you uh, born that way, or do you think you arrived in the workplace that way? No, I didn't arrive that way. Uh, it really came... Uh, came through training at uh, made department stores and the the predominant the predominant lesson that they taught us was to ask questions first and the, the reason for that was you wanted to build receptivity with the person that you were talking to and if you start out by stating your opinion you won't get the, the breadth or the richness out of the other person. When you ask a question to somebody that could be as simple as, what do you think? You affirm them as a, uh, as a respected individual. That's the first thing a question does. And the second thing asking a question does is allows you to hear a different point of view than what you have. So that was the first step. The second step they, they taught us was to respond back uh, politely um, and warmly, um, but also assertively. So most times when people express something to you, you can agree with the vast majority of what they're saying. But it also gives you the opportunity to respond back to them and say things like, have you considered, particularly those points that you disagreed with. And now the conversation is no longer a debate about the majority of the facts because you've both agreed in step one and step two what the facts are. The third, the third step is to allow the other person to respond back to you about what you disagreed or were challenging them on. And now it's become a much smaller conversation. The person feels like they've been accepted. They feel like you've heard what they've had to say. Um, and particularly if it's really genuine and authentic, the third step, what you think is different, is more easily accepted because you've heard the other person. So the third step is kind of a, 
letting them explain to you why they said what they said. And then the fourth step is obviously um, your reply back. And then the fifth step is you agree with, you agree to disagree on usually a very small part of the discussion. But in the end, what you have, you've created as a partner and somebody that respects the fact that you respect them. And it follows, one of the things they taught us was that people like people that like them. So having that orientation of liking other people is really important in terms of listening. And you can't learn if you're talking. And you can't hear if you're talking. And that was one of the big things that made a crowd of stories uh, reinforced with us a lot. So when you listed the items originally, I jotted them down in my shorthand. And for number three, I simply wrote, analyze effectively. But from what I recall, uh, you were suggesting that you look for people with analytical minds. Is that, uh, is that correct? Or what, what are you suggesting? Well, the, the, one of the most important things that I think in any business decision is you, you have to have the f- two things. One, the facts right, and two, what do you do with the facts? And, you know, so when we looked at folks, we would measure their ability to pay attention to the facts. But that's not the whole, that's not the whole solution. The second is, okay, now that you know the facts, what are you going to do about it? Or what should we do about it? And what do you think about these facts? And having people that have the personal strength to be able to analyze the facts and state their opinion and be able to do it un- without political uh, bias, it was really important to us. Um, you know, many times we heard things that we didn't like to hear or they were different than our opinion. Um, but you have to create an environment that allows people to analyze effectively. But any any person, any executive, uh, even in your personal life, knowing the facts is really important, but knowing what to do with the facts is just as important. And that was what we looked for uh, in folks, that they had the ability to do both of those things. Okay, and number four is people who develop others. And I think we all know what that means, but at the same time it makes me wonder, well, what are the characteristics of those people who are, you know, great at developing others? Um, what would you What would you tell us? Yeah, so um, it's interesting you ask that question. Uh, I always think about this gentleman who worked for me for almost 20 years. His name is Dwayne Bristetta. And um, we would always give him um, employees that we felt needed to be trained or needed a little bit more um, seasoning. And the reason why Dwayne was effective at developing others is he assumed that responsibility. So, for instance, when we would go on college campuses and hire, um, you know, graduates from schools like Penn State, you know, University of Pennsylvania, things like that, we give them to Dwayne. Now, the thing that Dwayne had, which was very important, is he didn't have an ego, and he didn't need to be heard. So he could come into a meeting with me and one of his subordinates and not say a word, and have the, uh, and it was okay for him to have the other person talk directly with me. The reason why that was important is that the junior executive or the younger executive would learn how to communicate with senior levels of the corporation. And Dwayne would 
in the background, Dwayne would have rehearsed them and said, this is what he's going to say, this is how he's going to say it, but this is your, this is your pitch, you, you do it. And at the end, afterwards, Dwayne would sit with the folks and he would talk with them about, well, I would have said this and I would have said that. But at no point would he embarrass the employee and at no point would he make sure that the employee wasn't well prepared. And he didn't need to come into the office to get a pat on the back or a pat on the head. He's, his focus was he knew his job, which was to create great executives. And many of the people that worked for Dwayne, we ended up uh, promoting within a year or two, which would drive Dwayne crazy because we were always taking his people uh, to fill in to or to promote to other areas. And he always had to, he always, he always had three to five employees he was training at any point in time. But I think the biggest thing that Dwayne did was it wasn't about him. It was about making these people better. And that's the, to me, that's the most important characteristic if you're going to develop other people. But, you know, I have to believe not everyone can be a Dwayne. Not everyone is going to be as gifted at uh, developing others. So, so it needs to be part of the uh, overall approach. Yes. And we, we, we all have that approach. And e- e- even if I was with the CEO and I had a uh, – a subordinate that was making a presentation, um, you know, it wasn't necessary for me to tell the CEO what I thought as long as the CEO was getting the right facts because what that did was it helped train the other pe- the other person that was with me in terms of how you talk and how you communicate and how do you deal effectively. There's nothing, um, I think, more important than having people on the field actually doing the job. That's the best training you can give anybody. Your, your fifth item I had a, a reaction to as well, um, and I wrote down simply people uh, who are results-oriented. And in my mind, in finance, where sometimes things uh, get off of the off track is when people are married to the process and not thinking about what the desired results are. But I'm curious as to what, why this made your list and what, what you were getting at. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, we were looking for folks that didn't weren't married to the process, that could think outside the box. And, you know, in, in each of our evaluations, um, and by the way, employees that have all five of these characteristics, we, we had this buzzword for them. We called them profile employees. So they were, they were competent in all five of these areas. But we were creating a culture. And that's why this one is important, that it's not just about the process. Is it Does it make the company better? Does it produce results? And if it doesn't, then you have to relook at what you're doing. And people that have the desire to do that become more valuable to the company, but also the company becomes more valuable. So that's why it was important to us. Because you can always find finance people that can get wedded to the process. It's much harder to find people that have a results orientation. And fortunately, um, I was was lucky enough throughout my career to be able to find folks like that. Well, Bruce, up to now we have spent uh, our time together looking back, and uh, we'd now like to advance forward with you and learn more about your most recent chapter, uh, which I understand is a post-finance career chapter. Please, fill us in. What are you you up to? 
Well, you know, I was really, Jack, I was really lucky um, in my career, you know, both financially and um, with some of the folks that um, took an interest in me and helped me in my life. And at some point, um, and it was actually about eight years ago, I felt like I needed to give back um, to what I received. And uh, I had been a been, been associated with the church, you know, mostly as a parishioner for many years. But what I, one of the things I noticed is that a lot of my the ministers of the church that I went to encouraged me to think about studying theology. So when I had gotten to a point in my life where I felt like I had enough, um, I had earned enough and made enough to uh, make sure my daughters could go to college and my wife could have a comfortable life, I actually left the business world. Jack, and for the last seven years, I've been getting, number one, a, a master's, uh, master's degree in uh, divinity with theology, and then for, that was, that took three years to do, um, and then I've been getting my doctorate degree, which, uh, by the way, I graduate this May with a doctorate degree, um, but the, the reason why I did that was to make sure I understood what Christianity was and to understand what theology was. It's a very complicated subject. So I wanted to help other people. And while I was doing this, Jack, one of the things I noticed is that the church thinks of business people, quote unquote, and I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek, soulless creatures. And the folks in the business world don't think that the church likes them. Now, these are maybe two dramatic um, of observations, but it kind of it kind of creates boundaries of what I'm trying to do. So the book that we wrote um, comes from this study, but it also comes from my, my business background. And what it does is it marries um, a lot of the principles that are in the Gospels back to the business world. Um, and because I have a unique perspective of knowing how business works, and now knowing how theology works, I was able to take stories of the great people that I've worked with and have worked for me and put them in a book and line up their behavior, many of the behaviors we talked about, and point out how that is something that is in the, the four Gospels of the, the New Testament. So the book is a business book, but it takes the exact words of uh, Jesus and associates them to the business world. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that Jesus was a business person. You know, he owned his own carpentry business in Nazareth. Um, if you read the parables of Jesus, and one of the things we did in the book was we ignored what um, the scholastic and academic, academic people said about Jesus, and we used his actual words. And what we discovered was of the 45 parables that are in the Bible, 35 of them are directly related to business um, and how to run a business. And, you know, as a carpenter, he learned, the, he learned the issues or already knew the issues about ethics, um, about how to do the right thing, and how to make a great product and how to be a great salesperson. So the book contains uh, chapters on, you know, Jesus, the greatest salesman, Jesus, the reputational borrower. So you take each one of the aspects of the business world, whether it's uh, running finance or sales or customer service, 
and we've taken his words and associated them with people that I've that I've met in the business world. So that's what, that's what the book is. It's a different take, and it's an interesting take because it's uh, written by somebody who's worked in both worlds. But the second thing that I did, which was very important to me, is I made sure I had good editors because uh, this is a very important subject. So Richard Willett, who was the editor for Proof of Heaven, uh, was the editor, and I used a professor to do a lot of the fact-checking and make sure the stuff that uh, I had in the book was accurate and correct. So the book has um, been well-researched, and it's been well-studied by a number of people besides myself. I want to understand better how you came to take this path. Uh, would this have even been imaginable for you at, uh, say, when you were at the Cushman Wakefield or, or Yankee Candle? Was there something in the back of your mind that you told yourself, someday I'll take this path? Yeah, no, it was, Jack, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a, an, an epiphany. It actually started in 1990. Um, you know, one of my early assignments in May Department Stores, we went to, we, we got transferred to uh, California to work for Robinson's, which was part of May Department Stores. And we met a great minister who kept just dropping uh, hints that this is what I should do. And then in each succeeding uh, location that I, I was in, the pastors would almost always say the same thing. And so when you get to a point, you stop paying attention to these messages you get and listening. And so it created a curiosity in me. And when I had gotten to that point, so this is over, this is close to two decades I've been getting these impulses. Uh, and so finally when I, I felt like I was in a position where I could, you know, answer that call, that's, that's what I did. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. Phil Hartman shares more about his latest chapter after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Now, uh, the point that comes back to me, given all the studies that you took on, you weren't going to do it halfway, uh, detail-oriented, your, your nature to be detail-oriented, you had to go immerse yourself in study. Am I? Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, uh, yeah. And so a couple of things, Jack. You know, the first paper I had to do uh, was only a two-page paper, only two pages, Jack. And, you know, I can Now I can write a two-page paper in a couple of hours. Uh, it, this took me two full days to do it and do it right. And I visited the, the school librarian. I went to their resource center and, 
it was daunting at first to do that. You know, for a finance person to learn how to express themselves uh, academically, that was the that was the hardest challenge uh, to overcome. And but I will tell you that I graduated with the highest uh, GPA in pastoral theology, which I treat as one of um, my biggest achievements in life. Not because of the achievement, but because of how hard I had to work just to get there. And getting a doctorate degree is another level beyond that. So I was really lucky um, at Drew University where I got these degrees, that I had great professors that were very patient, um, but also allowed me to express some of the thoughts that I had, which were unusual in the, um, the seminary and in getting my doctorate degree, because many times I was swimming upstream uh, versus what their preconceived notions were. But, you know, to their credit, they always allowed me to express myself. So that made life helpful. But the thing that I, I remember is getting, you know, at graduation, having the highest GPA in, in pastoral theology, which was was probably the thing that um, I'm the happiest about. Well, step back in, in the classroom for us for a second here and look around. Is there anybody like you? who was sitting in that classroom? Yeah, Jack, that's, that's a great question. No, there wasn't anybody like me. And what was interesting is many times I would sit in the classroom and I would hear, uh, you know, negative criticisms about the business world. And, you know, I would do what I could, you know, within the grounds of civility to, you know, defend my compatriots. Uh, but what was interesting, Jack, is whenever they needed somebody to run, the, to represent the school, the theology school and the student government association, they would always ask me uh, because of my business background. So I always found that ironic. But, no, there wasn't anybody else. But I would say that uh, most of my classmates respected, uh, to a certain extent, uh, my business background. Did Business ethics became part of what you studied or uh, what you uh, would write about. Yeah, and like like any study, Jack, um, you can tailor it. And so I did spend a lot of time in ethics. Um, and a lot of the book, Jesus and Company, it is a book about ethics. Um, you know, how do you treat a customer? Uh, how do you treat employees? Um, so a lot of the book, Jesus and Company, gets right to this issue, but I also studied. So my, my, two, con my two areas of concentration, one was um, pastoral theology, which is, you know, the study of um, how to help others. So that was number one. Number two was this issue of ethics. And the thing about ethics that um, it's a little bit um, – it's a little bit like um, – you know, business law for business people, it's, it's not intuitive at first. But once you understand the thought about what ought you to do, you can take that thought and apply it to just about anything in your life. So, for instance, you know, when you're – and we get confronted with these issues all day long – at this, for this situation, what ought I to do? And so learning how to ask yourself that question and then making qualitative decisions, that to me was the most important part of studying Christian ethics. But I think it applies to business ethics. What ought we to do when we are with a customer 
or, or counseling an employee? Well, there, you know, what, what I can't help but zero in on is how finance leaders are often uh, responsible in their companies for guarding the trust that employees have in their organizations, whereas the CEO gets to be the expressive one. And in some ways, I'm not surprised that a CFO might have uh, gone down this path that you've now taken, I guess. Well, t two things on that. Uh, I was always, always uh, fortunate uh, to work for CEOs that were extraordinarily ethical. Um, but your assessment is correct, that at the end of the day, the quality of the numbers and the quality of how a business operates, the buck does stop at the CFO. Um, and one of the things that we insisted on at um, well, every the, all the companies I was at, you always have a quote-unquote chief accounting officer. And the, the comment I would make all the time to folks when they brought up things to me, can we do this, can we do that, I would always point them back to the chief accounting officer and say, for instance, at Foot Locker was Giovanna Cipriano, I would say to them, what does Giovanna think? And then you have to probe to make sure you're getting, um, and body, body behavior gives you a lot of clues to whether or not you got the right answer. Um, but you have to be really rigid and really regimented to making sure that people in the organization who know what the ethics should be know that they have to be responsible and accountable for it. And if the chief accounting officer didn't agree with it, um, and I didn't agree with it. We didn't do it. And if I wasn't, if I was unsure, but the chief accounting officer was sure, we went with his or her opinion. Now, in the business world today, today it is the number to me. It is the number one thing that should be in every single business decision. And I don't think you can go forward in any business decision unless it's ethical. Now, when you began to think about the book, and I have to say that the sales chapter is the one that gets me. I, I, I don't doubt he created a quality product. However, uh, I, I'm, you know, the salesman in Jesus I, I was not aware of. And, and maybe you can just enlighten me to some extent there. I'm sure it's interesting. So, you know, it's a couple of things. A lot of people think that uh, Christianity is about believe or be doomed, right? And we've all heard that. If you don't believe in me, you're going to hell, right? That is not what Jesus said at all. Uh, that's something that we uh, have made up that he said. What Jesus really did was he invited himself um, and invited others into conversations. Now, think about a salesman if you know, in your own personal life. Do you think if they came to your door, and they said to you, either you buy my product or you're going to hell that you would buy it, right? But that's not, that wasn't Jesus' approach. Like, for instance, there was this woman at the well, this, this is a story that's in John, um, who, you know, she's had five husbands, um, is living with another man, and it would be easy for Jesus to say, you know, you're a sinner and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. But instead what he did was, he slowly, over a period of a couple of hours, talked with her and revealed a lot of things to her. Uh, and because she was accepted by him, 
she accepted his message. And in fact, this woman at the well, which is a famous story in the book of John, in fact, she converted her entire town uh, to see Jesus, to, to understand the teachings of Jesus. Now, to me, that's great salesmanship. Uh, you don't walk up to, um, if you're selling something, you, you never tell them why or what they they should buy. You work with them. You find out what their needs are. You find out um, their life. And I think too many times, and we all get affected by this, a salesman tell us why we need the product and from their benefit but not from our benefit. And Jesus did the opposite. He always sold his message through the eyes of the individual that he was talking to. Okay, the title of the book is Jesus and Company, Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. And I believe it's uh, available online this month. Uh, Well, it's March 20th. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's featured in Goodreads, um, the online website Goodreads, and it's in in a lo- all the major bookstores. Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, um, so it can be bought through any of those stores, uh, brick and mortar or online, through all the venues. Having not read the book, I strongly suspect there's a lot here that senior management and C-suite executives would find of value. But I wonder uh, whether having uh, Jesus' name in the title is going to curtail the potential audience, Uh, particularly in the the business world where executives will tend to distance themselves from any one religion. The issue you just brought up, was probably the single most discussed issue um, about the book. And, you know, both from my publisher and my agent. Um, And, you know, through the three of us, uh, we spent a lot of time on that. The agent actually is the person that finally came up with the the title. Uh, It wasn't me and it wasn't the publisher, but it included a a lot of research on both of all three of our parts. The, the issue is, um, Jack, is it could have been, uh, have broader initial appeal um, if, if we hadn't used the word Jesus. But the thing that I'm discovering, Jack, is some, some research that I did. 90% of Americans believe in God. Two-thirds of Americans pray daily. And um, only 20% of people go to church. So what that says is there's, there's a desire to know more, um, but Jesus is no longer, uh, a, let's say, an acceptable cocktail party conversation. You certainly can't bring him up in the office. Uh, so this is also part of an attempt to reintroduce Jesus as kind of a normal person and not as a controversial person. So uh, some of what CEOs and CFOs will react to is some of what they hear from the fringe of Christianity because they have louder voices than the 90% of the Americans. And particularly, I I actually can't walk around my town without having somebody come up to me and say, you know, can I have a copy of your book? Because it's it's a private conversation. Um, It's a private conversation that many people have with themselves. So in part, our uh, thought was that taking taking into account that most Americans believe in God and 75% of Americans believe in Jesus, 
that we could overcome this uh, this stigma, number one. And number two, we also have to be honorific to who the book is about. And to kind of put Jesus in the closet would have been the opposite of what we were trying to do with the book. So, no, that's a long explanation, but this issue you brought up is the single biggest hurdle we have to overcome, but it came with came with a lot of conversation on all three of our parts. And I'm happy with the way it ended up. It means I have to work harder. Um, but I think for the subject, I think it's important to, uh, to do what we do. We found this most enlightening. Thank you for spending the time with us on CFO Coffee. And thank you, Jack, for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.